Good morning. First of the year is always intended, I think, to be filled with optimism. So I hope that as we approach 2024, whatever your 2023 has been, I trust that, um, that you're excited about what God has in store for us. At the risk of, of quoting J.R. Tolkien too often, yeah, yeah, I know. One of my favorite quotes in all of his writings is a conversation between Frodo, the ring bearer, and Gandalf, the wizard. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you. Just hold on. But in a moment of particular stress, Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. To which Gandalf replies, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. That quote has been in my mind this week as I have prepared this lesson for this morning because I I've entitled this lesson, an, ever, an Evergreen Theme. And it is from the little postcard at the end of the New Testament called Jude. Jude sent out to write a letter to a church, much like Paul and John and, and, and other apostles did over the years. And Jude said, I, I wanted to write about better things. But I feel compelled to talk to you about contending for our faith. You see, contending for the faith is really uh, a biblical way of describing spiritual warfare. A way of of digging in your heels and and, and deciding that on some things, despite what the culture around us says, despite what society at large claims to believe, we've decided that there are some things that we, we dig in our heels, we plant our feet, and we will not be moved. That's called contending for our faith. And we can say, well, I wish, this, I, wish I wasn't in this generation. I'm not a good fit in this generation Well, listen, the reality is Christians have never been a good fit in any generation. But we're likely to to romanticize times past and say, I wish I I lived in a different time. I wish these challenges had not come to me. To which our answer must be the biblical version of Gandalf's answer. All of us feel that way. But it is not ours to choose when we come into the fray. The only thing we can decide is how we stand once we're here. Open your Bibles to the book of Jude. It's the last page before the book of Revelation, which is, uh, I think, deeply significant because Jude is a letter about this unpleasant spiritual responsibility of standing firm as a Jesus follower in a moment of intense spiritual warfare. 
he wrote about that kind of moment, and his words are extraordinarily relevant because we live in that kind of moment. Let me give you an example. A USA Today article recently described how young parents today are seeking to initiate their children into a world of all faiths. There's a woman named Emma Druyard who runs a ceremony service. Never heard of a ceremony service. But what she does, it's essentially a secularized uh, version of, uh, of an infant baptism. I mean, it's sort of a, a, an introduction of a, of a newborn into um, the spiritual world, I guess. She was asked by a couple to conduct a service for their baby whose name was Greer. The mother said this, We just wanted a larger spirit to guide our daughter, but we didn't want to get specific. I wanted all her bases covered. The couple went on to say, We do Christianity light, L-I-T-E, and our daughter Greer believes in angels and fairies and leprechauns all equally. This is the generation that we've been put in, placed in. A generation that we were told about in Scripture. A generation that doesn't want truth. They want what the biblical phrase is, they want the, a message that will tickle their ears, a message that will be delightful, perpetually encouraging. Now, the Word of God is hugely encouraging to believers. I mean, you can't get more encouragement than the promise that we win. But when you don't want Jesus, what you're looking for is a message that our generation is currently perfecting, which is there is nothing about you that needs to change. You are just fine the way you are. The lie of that is incomprehensible because for all the reassurance, for all of the the, the affirmation for all of the ways our society says you are fine just the way you are, we are the most miserable generation in human history. Why? Because despite what they tell us, we are wired deep in our souls to know that we're not okay, that the way we are is not working. That something needs to happen to make us different than we are. And the, the best advice the culture has is just lean into your imperfections. It's okay to be imperfect. Well, it's okay to be imperfect until you decide that your imperfection is perfection. We're all imperfect. One of the criticisms of the church is it's just filled with hypocrites. No, actually, the hypocrites are the ones out there who are pretending to be okay. We're in here because we know we're not okay. But guess what? There, there is good news to the not okay people. There's good news to the imperfect people. 
And that is somebody came and was perfect in our place. And his perfection makes up for our imperfection. In fact, our imperfection in him begins to be whittled away until one day we're promised that we will see him as he is because we will be like him. What does Jude have to tell us that is relevant for us? This for Evergreen has been, 2023 has been what we call the year of, the, of, of advance. We have advanced in remarkable ways as a church. There are quantifiable ways that we've advanced, but the best, the most significant advancements we've made are not always quantifiable. They are changed lives. We can measure attendance, and we can measure budgets, and we can measure, you know, that, that kind of uh, tangible uh, metric. But the reality is people in this room could stand up place after place after place, and you say, I'm spiritually different today than I was one year ago today because God's been up to something in my life. God's used the, the, the people that, that make up Evergreen in my life. God is beginning to transform me, my heartbeat, my, my priorities, my love for people, my willingness to be less so that others can be more. Those are, those are intangible things, but we've advanced. But as we face 2024, as we finish the year of advance, next week I'll tell you what, what, what we're designating 2024, but I just want us to... To, to come today and say, okay, where does the advance stand? And right now it stands with our church being influential. Influential in the city, influential in our generation, influential in workplaces across northeastern Oklahoma, influential in helping churches in other nations around the globe. That is not me saying, look how wonderful we are. That is an analysis of the way God has allowed us to advance the kingdom over the course of the last year. But we need to sort of renew our resolve. It's the time for resolutions. It's the time to make decisions about the future. So let us look in the little book of Jude because I want us to consider um, what it looks like for us to uh, continue to advance. In this book, Jude starts in the, I'm going to read the first four verses. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you, about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ." He starts by saying, I, I, I set out, I sat down to write a letter and I wanted to write about our common salvation. You see, our common salvation is, is something that we can revel in. It's something that we should enjoy talking about. The salvation that we share, 
the content of the gospel, the good news that God is making us different because of Jesus being in us and that we have a bond together because he's in each one of us. We share a commonality regardless of our differences, our skin colors, our economic differences, our backgrounds, our educations, where we've come from, what part of the the, the nation, what part of the world, all of the things that make us different. We come into this place and we realize we have something in common, and that is our bond in Jesus Christ. Because we are bonded to him, we are bonded to each other. And so the church becomes a place that, that we love to talk about. And it breaks my heart when I run into people who, who are unhappy in their church. Because I, I, I want you to be able to, to talk about your church. And, and you know the best, I made this point the other night when we did our a month ago when I did the budget presentation. We're a church with, um, I don't even know how many members. Um, I don't know, 1,500, 1,800, I, I don't know exactly, but a lot of members. We have a budget next year over $4 million. Now, here's, why that, here's where I'm going with that. Our advertising budget for a church this size with a $4 million general budget, our advertising budget is something like $1,200. I mean, that's like pennies. Why? Because we do a couple of little things. Um, uh, Reesers this week invited us uh, to put our church on their, um, on their prescription bags for the next year. Okay, we'll do that. But we didn't go out, we don't, we don't have television commercials or radio commercials or, or, or billboards. Why? Because you know what the best advertisement for a church is? The happy church member who says, hey, listen, you got to see where I go to church. You got to come with me to my church. That's the way, that's the way we try and do this because we share this common salvation. But Jude says, I I wanted to talk to you about that because that's something I can talk about all day long. I roll out of bed wanting to talk about what we share in Christ. But while I was making every effort to write that letter, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. It's a critical exhortation. He says, he says there, this, this faith that we've received, we are a, a particular kind of people. We are people who were called by the Holy Spirit, loved by the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. We've been called, loved, and kept, and what that does is it tells us that, that, we, are, that we have standing together with him. But, it, but we live in a world that doesn't recognize the value of that standing, and so he says, I want you to take a stand against an enemy. Now, understand when, when he's talking about contending for the faith, we have to be very careful because the people that are not Christians in our generation, they're not really the enemy. Okay? Um, sometimes Christians can get, can get pretty judgmental and, and we, we, we criticize the people out there who are not Christians. But here's the thing, you've got you to begin to see the, the, the non-Christians in your neighborhood, the non-Christians in your workplace, they're not the enemy, they're prisoners of war. See, they're being held captive by the enemy. 
We've got to recognize who the enemy is. And our task in contending for the faith is standing for truth in such a persuasive way by the life that we live, the words that we speak, that prisoners of war are drawn to the freedom that can be found in the gospel. One of the things our generation often says is that, you know, well, there's no proof that Jesus even existed. I love that argument. I will have that argument all day long. I made a short list here just off the top of my head. In AD 52, uh, uh, a man named Thallus argued for uh, a non-miraculous explanation of the darkness that was universally seen in the middle of the day on the day of the cross of Christ. Tacitus, um, at the end of the first century, uh, wrote extensive confirmation about the facts of Jesus' life in Judea. These are non-biblical sources. Jesus is mentioned by Mara Barsepion, a Syrian philosopher in AD 70, Phlegion, a Roman historian in AD 80, uh, who issued serious attacks against the Christian account of Easter. Jesus is mentioned by Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, Lucian of Samosata, Celsus, and numerous other Jewish sources. We've got to quit backing down because people argue that Christianity is just a blind leap into the dark. It's not based on empirical evidence. The fact of the matter is our worldview is the only worldview that makes sense of reality. We've got to quit running away from those conversations. You want to argue that Jesus didn't exist? All of the evidence is on my side. You want to argue that, 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 that we were, that we cre- were created, that we evolved from, from, from some primordial slime that was struck by lightning and, 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 and non-matter became animated matter? We can argue that all day long. You've got, you've got the propaganda, but the evidence is on my side. We are for the first time beginning to see scientists making the argument that only the idea of a creator, they may not argue for the biblical creator, the, the Christian God, but they'll, they'll admit that only the idea of, a, of an intelligent designer can explain what we now find in the empirical evidence related to creation. We've got to quit running away from those conversations. You say, well, I'm just, I'm, just not, I'm just not prepared for them. Well, that's what I'm telling you. Get prepared. Your 2024 resolution is to read a book. You need a book to read, I'll give you a book to read. I want you to be able to have conversations with people. I want you to not be intimidated because we are going to contend for the faith. We're going to enjoy having those conversations about our common salvation. It's one of the great joys that we share. But when we go out into the world, we're going to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. It is a faith based on reality. It is a faith based on empirical evidence. It is a faith that can withstand Debate. The laziest Christian is the one who says, ah, I don't know, I I just believe it all by faith. I believe it all by faith too. I believe it by faith because it makes sense rationally. So God became man? Yes, yes. It's an elegant solution to the problem of the human condition. Jesus Christ 
died after living a perfect life so that he could substitute and take the penalty for us? Yes, yes. It's the only way that it could possibly happen. There is no other religion that offers a solution to the human condition other than Christianity that works. I mean, look at the frustration. I've been in, in countries around the world that, that have other uh, majority religions. I, I've been in, in India, which, which is primarily a Hindu nation. The frustration of having one and a half million gods with having no settled authoritative documents to draw from, no agreement of, uh, of, of what's true and what's not true, what can be trusted and what should be set aside. It, it is, it's like wandering through a, a, a cornfield maze that doesn't ever lead anywhere. I've been in Buddhist countries. Buddhism is this awful idea that your goal in life is to survive endless cycles of just do it. You ever played a video game that you can't beat and you just get so frustrated because you just always go back and have to start over? That's what reincarnation is. We have the Hollywood crowd that, that, that talks about reincarnation like it's some wonderful thing. Reincarnation is is the worst possible explanation for the human condition. It's a, it's a video game that always resets that you can never win. And, and, and Buddhists have, are, have been told the way out of that cycle is you have to separate yourself from desire. Well, good luck with that. I told you about being in Nepal one time and having breakfast with a Buddhist monk who had a Rolex watch on his left wrist. Separate yourself from all, all desire. You must desire nothing. And what's the goal of that? If you do achieve the absence of desire, of appetite, of, of want... If you do achieve it, you know what your grand prize is? You are absorbed into the nothingness of a random universe. Folks, Islam. Islam argues that God is capricious and arbitrary. Your best hope is that you die when he's having a good day. Because there's no guarantee that anything you do in life will actually get you over the finish line. Oh, with the exception of, uh, of jihad, dying a martyr's death. Here is an entire world religion where the only guaranteed promise that you can hold on to is if you commit suicide as you try and destroy and murder other people, then God will accept you. I'm sorry, that's not a God that lives up to even my weak moral standards. Why are we scared to death to engage people in conversations about Jesus? 
Jesus makes sense of reality. Jesus makes sense of the truth. Jesus gives a solution to the human condition. Jesus has answers for the problems that we experience. He said, I wanted to write about the common salvation because I love that conversation. But I felt it necessity, a necessity to appeal to you to contend for the faith. It's an inescapable mandate The Bible is the finished work of revelation. It's interesting that cults always distort the Word of God. They always add to it. I'm here to tell you that revelation has been completed. What we know is that what God has given us in His revelation is sufficient for us to live life. Now, when... When we come to this, he, he says certain people have crept in unnoticed. That is, his great concern was not just the people outside of the church that are living lives that, that aren't consistent with truth. His real concern was when those people uh, crept in unnoticed. You ever, found, um, you ever found a creature in your house? It can be any kind of creature. Man, we had a rainstorm one night, and Diane came down the stairs and walked through the house in the dark, finally turned on the light, and I heard this blood-curdling scream, and the floor was covered. I think I picked up 19 earthworms, and not just little fishing earthworms, long earthworms that had found a way in the house during the thunderstorm. We didn't hear it. We were asleep. Happened while we weren't alert. We didn't even really notice it until we turned on the light. And then I knew about it because obviously the scream went off. But see, that's what Jude says. We're rocking along celebrating our common salvation But he said, you have to understand that there are people bringing outside ideas and they're trying to slip into the church unnoticed. Well, we're open to the world, but we have a process here for membership. Because see, we're trying to make sure that that if you want to be a part of a church with a regenerate membership, that you're actually a regenerate person. It's not the perse- persecution has never, has never been the death knell for the church. Our brothers and sisters in Nigeria right now, I don't know if you've read any of this. I've been debating about a truth currents on this subject. Do you know that since Sharia law has been implemented in the nation of Nigeria. Uh, about 50,000 Christians have been executed. There were 200 Christians executed on Christmas Eve in a Christmas Eve service in their church. Now, those are horrible things, and God will deal with those who persecute the church. But I'm here to tell you, persecution has never been the real danger for the church. The real danger for the church are those creatures that sneak in. And they bring false teachings into the family. 
Why do you need to know how to stand firm? Why do you need to understand theology? Why do you need to read a book and understand what we believe? Because even the man who stands in this pulpit has to have his words measured by your understanding of God's word because you can't take anything that I say if it doesn't line up with the word of God. Don't accept it. But you've got to know, we've got Christians in our generation. I'm always asking you to read the Bible. And by the way, tomorrow is January the 1st, a great time to start reading your Bible, okay? Start reading your Bible. We've shown by our, what we did in the first part of December, uh, we read the entire Bible through in 80 hours. You can read through the Bible in 80 to 90 hours. Spread that out. You can do this. But I'm afraid oftentimes we have churches not filled with people who have read the Word of God. They're filled with people who know people who have read the Word of God. I'm not your source of biblical truth. I'm your coach. I'm your cheerleader. I'm helping you to advance. But you've got to read it. You've got to understand it. You've got to know it. That's how we contend for the faith. Well, drop down to the close of this chapter. Beginning in verse 20. He's going to talk to us about, um, about how we can have a strategic response to the world that we live in. Our first strategic response is that we have to be educated in word and faith. Now, that's what I've been talking about. You have to read the Bible, and you have to, you have to read other books. You have to know theology. You say, I'm just so intimidated by theology. You know, do you know the rules of football? Do you know how to use your computer? Do you know how to use your washing machine? This is not any different from that. Theology is simply a, a, a subject that we learn about as we apply ourselves to it. You can do this. We have to be educated in the word of faith. Part of our strategy at Evergreen has been in 2023, we have um, highlighted the need for a Christian school. In the fall of 2024, we are going to open, uh, we're going to open the doors for Evergreen Academy. In fact, you see in your worship folder today that beginning tomorrow, uh, enrollment applications for Evergreen Academy uh, are open and online, as well as employment applications. Let me show you this crest, and maybe you've seen it, but, but I want to explain a little bit of it. The Evergreen Academy crest has, is a symbol, and each symbol, each part of it means something. The outer ring uh, affirms with Revelation 1.8 God's eternal nature as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It symbolizes a commitment that we are making to not only educate and train students for their current lives, but also for a future that extends into eternity. The cross in the center 
embraces the wisdom of 1 Corinthians 1.18. It's a symbol that reflects our commitment to guide students in responding to the gospel and establishing a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the core of our philosophy of mentoring and training up Christian leaders for the next generation. The cross is in the, is in the center of a shield. The shield is drawn from Ephesians 6.16. We believe that faith when firmly grasped and raised like a shield, serves as a protective barrier against adversaries. It symbolizes our understanding of God and the unwavering trust that we have in Him. We believe that within every student that God will entrust to us in the next years, there exists a spiritual warrior ready to be shaped, trained, and deployed to advance the cause of Christ. That shield is divided into four quadrants. The first quadrant, you see evergreen trees. That's drawn not just from the name of, of the school and of the church, but it comes from uh, Psalm 1, where a person is described as being like a tree planted by flowing streams of water, prospering and yielding fruit in season. You may not know, but then the reason that this church is named Evergreen is because in the early days when we were seeking God to, to know what to name this church, the idea of evergreen trees came to us as as a symbol of, of something that is always growing, always alive, no matter the circumstances around it. The second quadrant has the academic torch placed above the Bible. That is, the torch positioned above the Bible aligns with, Psalm, with Proverbs 2, 6, which states, "...the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding." This emblem signifies the student's journey toward intellectual advancement as they wholeheartedly engage in the pursuit of academic knowledge and excellence that is grounded in a distinctively biblical worldview. The Bible will serve as the cornerstone of each student's scholarly pursuit. The third quadrant is a centurion's helmet. Back to Ephesians chapter 6, we're told that the helmet is to be put on as a part of the full armor of God. The symbolism of the helmet aligns with the idea that that spiritual armor embodies each student's desire to evolve into spiritual warriors. A school that will be distinct even from other Christian schools because we will be a discipleship-oriented school, embracing the reproduction of godly virtues, preparing students to confront challenges of faith with strength, wisdom, and resolute commitment, just like a centurion who wears his helmet into the battle. And then the crown. 2 Corinthians 5.20 stresses that God's people are supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. The crown signifies our belief that God is the righteous ruler of this world. And it is our task to move toward the dominion of God's kingdom so that the prayer that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven would be a reality. The crown is a symbol of authority and sovereignty, but it signifies for us the responsibility we share in educating and helping our students grow where they become ambassadors for God's kingdom in their generation, making the world a better place because they bring the good news of the gospel to bear on the real world situations that their generation will face. So is this a commercial for Evergreen Academy? No, but it is a clear part of the advance 
that God has put on us in 2023 as we move into 2024. Now, just as a side note, let me show you this. We will be the evergreen grizzlies. (laughs) Someone very close to me said, it's too fierce and ferocious. And I said, no, no, it's just right. Besides being educated in the word and faith, we have to be insulated in the love of God. Look at verse 20 back in Jude. Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. He says, Build yourselves up. The burden is on us. That's the human side of sanctification. The prodigal son, uh, Longfellow said that the prodigal son was was the greatest story that was ever written. But in the prodigal son, the story, there was a father waiting patiently, ready to receive. But the son had to come to the place where he took it upon himself to say, I'd rather be a slave in my father's house than be a free man in my sin. When Jude says, build yourself up, He's saying, make a decision to stay in God's will, to be what he wants, where he wants, when he wants, so that his word, his promises become ours. Build yourself up in the word of God. He calls it the most holy faith. And and learn how to pray in the spirit. Look what he says. Um, uh, Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. You know, I went back and looked because I... I had it in my head in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Do you know the only request that the disciples ever made of Jesus that's recorded for us, request for training, was he, they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, when you go back and you look at the Greek, the actual language of, of that verse, it's fascinating, and we miss this. They're not saying, teach us how to pray. They're saying, teach us to get on with it. Teach us to pray. See, that's going to be part of my my 2024 personal resolutions because I know how to pray, but I too often find myself waiting until I have a list of things that I need to talk to God about. Man, nobody wants to... You know, you ever have that, that person, maybe a teenager that shows up and, and you're just like, okay, what do you want now? Because the only time they come around is when they want something, right? We do that to God all the time. I don't need to be taught how to pray. I know how to pray. But I, I, I've seen that with new eyes. Luke 11, verse 1. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us what we need to make this a priority. Jude said, if we're going to contend for the faith, we've got to build ourselves up in the word of God. We've got that part. We, 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 we prioritize that part. But then he said, you've got to be praying in the spirit. You've got to have that as a part of your discipline. There's probably not more than half a dozen people in this room who, if I said, do you have a strong prayer life, would raise their hands. Maybe half a dozen, maybe a dozen. Yes, I have a strong prayer life. The rest of us, we know we ought to pray. We're not, we're not 
busy about it. But that could be, that could be a resolution. What if you said, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to take 90 hours. I'm going to take 80 hours out of my schedule in 2024 and I'm going to read the Bible start to finish. Man, get a chronological Bible and read the the story arc. And what if you said my second resolution is I'm going to make prayer something that I do. In fact, I'm not leaving my house. I may be late for work, but I'm not leaving my house until I've met with the Lord just for a few minutes. I'm going to pray every day. I just don't have time for that. Folks, look at the world around us. We don't have time to not do that. This is how we contend for the faith. We learn doctrine. We build ourselves up in the Word of God, and we pray in the Spirit. Oh, and then he mentions this. He says, Keeping your, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. In other words, building yourself up in the Word, making prayer a discipline, a daily discipline in your life. But here's the third thing. He says, have a sense of expectancy and anticipation that Jesus is coming back. That is so crucial to godliness. Because, see, if we let it slip out of our minds that, you know, yeah, he's coming back someday, but, you know, whatever. Can Jesus come back today? There's all kinds of debates. This has to happen. This has to happen. No, nothing needs to happen. It's all in, in place. I don't know about all the debates. I mean, I know what I think, but that's beside the point. The biblical idea is we're supposed to live with the expectation that Jesus could come any day. Are there other things that need to happen? Listen, God will work that out. Jesus is going to come at precisely the right time. But I need to live like he could come at any minute. Because that's what keeps me focused. That's what keeps me zeroed in on the right priorities. Well, then he says this. We have to be separated for the gospel mission. Verse 22, have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by flesh. We don't have time to talk a lot about this verse, but basically what he's saying to us is have compassion. You know, one of the most effective, you you don't have to take a course. You don't have to study a manual. One of the most effective means of evangelism is to try tears. To walk alongside patiently with people who are struggling to find what's true. He says to have compassion with the strugglers. Have courage with those who are marching headfirst into the fire. Tell them the truth with urgency. Then he says have cautious with those who are Harden sinners, approach them carefully, loving the person but hating the sin. There's a danger here, so he requires a slow approach. But then he says, be confident in the destiny of believers. Two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Verse 24, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time 
and now and forever. Amen. You see, it's interesting when he says here that, that you are secure because, it, because he will keep you. And notice, notice this. I, I missed this for years. To him who is able to protect you from stumbling. I used to, in my mind, read that as keep you from falling. But falling is the act of, of, of crashing, of landing. This says he's able to keep you from stumbling. Stumbling is what precedes falling. If we keep in love, if we keep ourselves in love with God, if we are devoted to the Word of God, if we practice prayer, if we live a holy life, He will keep us from even stumbling. Not only that, will we not only not fall in this life, He will make us able to stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. We're not only secure in this life, he's going to keep us from stumbling. We're secure in the next life because he will present us without fault. In the ancient world, in the Jewish world, a wedding followed a particular pattern. See if you don't see something um, meaningful here when we, when we talk about the return of Christ. Let me, let me just read you this paragraph. Jewish weddings in biblical times throw considerable light on the book of Revelation. First, there was the stage of the marriage covenant. Here the groom would leave his father's house and travel to his prospective bride to settle and pay a ransom price. The second stage would come when once the agreement was made, the bride and groom would drink wine as a symbol of unity. Now they were considered married, although they did not begin living together. The groom had to prepare a place for his bride. The third stage came at the end of that time. When the groom had prepared the place, he would come back at an unannounced time. When people in the neighborhood saw him coming, they would begin to shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Thus they would forewarn the bride to get ready. The fourth stage would entail the groom getting the bride and taking her to his father's house for the wedding ceremony. There he would present her before his father. I don't even have to make that connection. Did I just not describe everything that Jesus promised? He came to get a bride. He secured with our, our acceptance of his invitation, he secured that bride. He said, I'm going to leave now. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare that place, I'll come again so that there you may be with me. He is coming again at an unannounced time. The bride must be ready. No bride would ever contemplate casually approaching the wedding day. It's her moment to shine. It's her most beautiful moment of a lifetime. The bride would be ready and the groom will come and he'll take her back to his father's house where the marriage is celebrated with the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I know that we're going to continue to advance until he does. And we're going to dig in our heels in a crazy generation. And we're going to contend for the faith. And we're going to do it by strengthening our grasp of the Word of God and of the theology that, that will help us understand what's true. 
practicing prayer in a more disciplined way and living with the expectation that the groom might already be on his way here. That's who we are. A people called Evergreen. Advancing into a new year in a moment in time that we didn't pick for ourselves. But God placed us right here, right now. We are the right people to face the challenges of this generation. Let us go, not just in confidence in Him, but in confidence in the destiny that He has promised for us. May the people of Evergreen advance the cause of Christ until Jesus comes back. In His name, amen.